Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Aaron, and today we're going to be talking about wilderness survival. And I certainly am no expert on the subject. That's why we have our very own Jeff Barber here, who is. Jeff is not only one of the founders of Single Tracks, he's also an Eagle Scout and an Air Force veteran. So, He's going to drop some knowledge on our heads. We are going to use the Boy Scouts Wilderness Survival Checklist as an outline for our discussion today. So we'll just go over the survival priorities as they list them. So first up, positive mental attitude, which, you know, that's that's vital to your daily survival. Next up, first aid. After that, we have shelter, then fire, signaling, water, food, and that's it. All right, so let's uh, let's start this discussion with the first of those, a positive mental attitude. Jeff, why is a positive mental attitude important? Well, so I'll start this by saying that, you know, none of us go into a mountain bike ride thinking about survival. And so that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this because, you know, backcountry survival is something that obviously you don't really plan for it. You know, it's a situation where you go out for a ride and all of a sudden, like you're looking like you're going to have to spend the night out on the trail or, or you're lost or whatever. So these tips are, are really important for that uh, to know before you head out, even if you just think you're going for a short ride. So like Aaron said, there is a checklist basically of like needs in a survival situation. And the first thing on that list. A lot of people might think it's, you know, oh, you, you got to have water, you know, and water is vitally important. And we'll talk about that later. But at least according to the Boy Scouts and other um, sort of survival experts, a positive mental attitude is the first thing that you need if you are in a survival situation. So what that means is just basically be calm. If you're in a situation, don't freak out. You know, that doesn't help anybody, um, especially if you're with a group. And if you want to be a leader of that group, you know, you definitely want to be calm. You want to be confident. So, and I'll talk a little bit about how you can, how you can be confident in a situation like that, but, but you don't want to be overconfident. You do also want to be realistic about your situation. So hoping for the best, but planning for the worst once you realize you're there. So like I said, to get the confidence that you need in a situation like that, to get yourself to a point where you're not going to freak out you really should, you should listen to this podcast because studying these survival techniques are really going to help you to know that, you know, if everything goes wrong, at least I know what to do and I know what the steps are and I'm going to get out alive and, and be fine at the end of it. So some specific things you can do, you know, there are breathing exercises. If you're hyperventilating or anything like that, that's obviously you need to get that under control uh, before you can be useful in doing anything else. I know for me, one of my first experiences with this was uh, when I was like in Cub Scouts. I was, I don't know, first grade or second grade or something. We went and spent the night in this cave. It's a huge, huge cave. Like there's a snack bar in the cave. Snack bar in a cave. That's right. It's, it's ginormous, like chandelier in the ceiling. It's this place in Tennessee, Cumberland Caverns. But anyway, yeah, so there's like hundreds, if not a thousand uh, Cub Scouts spending the night in this huge cave. And we went on this thing that was called the wild tour. And they took us through this route that involved like, you know, getting down, you know, on your belly and crawling through some stuff and like really skinny passages. And at one point I just started getting really claustrophobic and like, 
having a hard time breathing. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't get out of here. Like, uh, you know, I'm going to be stuck in this cave. Of course, there's like kids in front of me and behind me and like, it's not a big deal. But, but yeah, I learned, I learned there that you got to control your breathing. You got to like take it easy and just take a second, collect yourself before you try to move on. So having a positive mental attitude too is going to help you make good decisions when you're in this situation. Um, if you're, if you're panicked, you're going to tend to do things like you might try to just like ride as fast as you can to get back to your car or something like that. That's going to end up getting you injured or, you know, more lost than you already are. So again, having a positive mental attitude, that's your number one thing. Make sure you're calm and uh, you're making rational decisions before you move on to the next step. And that next step is first aid. Right. And I mean, it's kind of obvious, but it's called first aid for a reason. You know, that's the first, at least in this case, it's the second thing that you do after having a positive mental attitude. But health and safety is number one. So if you're like injured, if this is a survival situation, because say you're riding along, it's getting kind of dark, but you know, you're a few miles from the car and you think you're going to be fine. And then all of a sudden somebody in your group like falls and breaks their arm or somebody gets a serious, serious cut in that situation, you know, all of a sudden you're in a survival situation. You, you're stuck out. You got no help. But first thing you got to do is stabilize the wound if there is one. So again, if, if this is a survival situation because someone's injured, take care of that injury first. So you're going to stabilize the injuries. Ideally, you're going to have a first aid kit with you and, you know, potentially you're going to have a little bit of knowledge about what to do. But particularly for, you know, bleeding, or anything like that, you're going to want to, you want to stop the bleeding because somebody could die from that, you know, very quickly, much more quickly than say dying of dehydration or hunger or anything like that. So again, yeah, stabilize the wound. One of the things you can do, and this goes back to, you know, your survival training and giving yourself confidence, but consider taking a course on wilderness first aid. Uh, you can find these types of classes offered year round in most locations. Uh, Imba, I'm not sure if Imba still does it, but they used to offer some classes or partner with some people to offer classes. Uh, the Red Cross does them. The National Outdoor Leadership Summit, or I don't know what the S is, NOLS, uh, Google it. They also have like a wilderness medicine course. And then, yeah, Aaron, have you ever, have you ever heard of anyone with a serious injury on the trail and what happened? Well, knock on wood here. I've been pretty fortunate myself not to have any serious injuries out on the trail. Definitely plenty of bumps and bruises and scrapes and cuts, but nothing particularly bad for myself. Uh, I have been riding with some buddies, you know, broken collarbones and that sort of thing, but nothing Nothing really life-threatening, thankfully. Probably one of the worst injuries I've seen was during a mountain bike race, uh, Fool's Gold, a few years ago, which is up in Dahlonega, Georgia. One of the guys in the race had, had crashed, and I think he somehow, I think he like dislocated his femur. It was pretty bad. So I stopped with him for a minute, and then some other riders stopped, and, you know, someone was waiting with him, so I headed down the trail, and, you know, obviously I was going to get to the aid station and tell the aid station that someone was injured. But by the time I, before I'd even made it to the aid station, there were already people heading back up towards the uh, injured rider. So thankfully I've been very uh, fortunate in that regard. How about you? 
Yeah, I, I'm terrible with blood. Like if I see somebody bleeding, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want me like you want me and then you want someone else on the ride that can deal with that because <laughs> okay well i'll ride with you i can deal with blood it's a uh, puke i can't deal with puke oh yeah that doesn't that make that's me not puke. a first aid situation no i don't think okay good upset stomach yeah, yeah i think that's okay i'll just pat you on the back and keep riding because <laughs> I, I can't be there for that yeah well one of the things that um i tend to keep in mind and maybe this will give others some confidence too if they are in a survival situation, at least on a mountain bike ride. I enjoy reading books about people who have survived like, you know, really difficult situations. And the stories that to me are the most incredible are stories of people who survive like shipwrecks and things like that. Like people who are out at sea for, you know, weeks or months at a time. And I just think of that when I think about you know, going out and mountain biking, like you said, you know, guy broke his femur, uh, but he couldn't have been more than five miles away from, yeah, from a road, right. From a road. Maybe there was cell phone service, maybe not, but you know, even, even on a big, big ride, you're always going to be fairly close to a road. So you should be able to, you know, hobble out, especially if you've got people with you, they can help you. And, and if not, then they can go get help. You know, there's a lot of ways that, you can survive that situation. Unlike if you're stuck in a raft in the middle of the ocean and yeah, nobody knows where you're at. So that's what I tell myself (laughs) sometimes too, is like, geez, at least I'm not in the ocean. You know, I can, I can find a way out. So yeah. What about, um, self rescue? Have you learned anything about that? Cause uh, what if you are out in the back country by yourself alone and no one's coming? Yeah, that can be tricky. Um, I think we'll cover that a little bit uh, when we talk about signaling. Uh, but yeah, I mean, one, we'll also talk about preventative measures. And, you know, my number one thing would be don't go out alone. Uh, but, but there may be situations where you're riding with someone and you need to go get help because they're immobile or you, you can't get them out. So yeah, a lot of these techniques will definitely work for self rescue as well. So yeah, hopefully we'll cover that. Uh, a couple more things to mention on the uh, the wilderness or first aid courses. I think even places like REI will offer you know basic first aid classes for a nominal fee. And uh, if you want to get really serious, you can get your WFA or WFR certification, which has a little bit more expense to it, but it's really intense training. They're usually typically like a three day, like over a weekend kind of class where you're you're there all day and you're learning how to treat certain injuries maybe how to do some basic diagnosis kind of things and then how to how to stabilize injured people so all right we've talked about keeping a positive mental attitude we talked a little bit about first aid so let's say shit's really hit the fan and you're gonna need shelter what's that all about yeah so I find it interesting, or it may seem surprising to people that, you know, we're going through this list, we're already on number three, uh, but we still haven't talked about water or food. You know, that seems to be the number one thing that people prepare for, you know, bring extra food and extra water, or, you know, you just imagine yourself in a survival situation and you're like, what would I drink? What would I eat? Well, that's the least of your concerns, at least, you know, in terms of the priorities or the things that could kill you faster. So when we're talking about shelter, One of the big things to remember is there's a rule of thumb for uh, survival that says, you know, you can basically, you could die within 
just three hours due to hypothermia. So if it's cold outdoors, uh, you could you could easily die from hypothermia within three hours. Uh, you could you can survive for three days without water, and then you could also survive three weeks without food. So again, that gives you like an idea of the order of magnitude about how important these things are. So shelter is super important. Again, if you're if you're in a really cold environment, you're going to want shelter. Hopefully, you have some layers with you or space blanket or something you can use to make a shelter. Uh, but if not, you know you're going to have to find some things around you like leaves and logs and things to kind of fashion a shelter that's going to insulate you and keep you warm uh, if it's cold. You can even build shelters out of snow. You know the the Eskimos do it with their igloos. Uh, it seems counterintuitive, but it does work. And then also, if you're in a hot environment, shelter is just as important because uh, you, you're going to get dehydrated really quickly if you're just out in the sun. You know, if you're in the desert somewhere, you're going to want to fashion something that's going to keep you out of the sun because, you know, being in the heat can not just give you dehydration, but you can get heat exhaustion and heat stroke and all kinds of other stuff. So, you know, you don't want to build, you don't need to build something that's really elaborate. We're not talking about Swiss Family Robinson style where you're like, you know, you got like a coconut, like water delivery system and all that. Like you just need something to cover you up, basically like a blanket, you know, something you can just slip under and it's going to keep your body heat warm or, you know, keep your body heat around you, especially in the winter. And then if you're in a hot environment, you know, you're going to want to try to build some sort of shelter to provide some shade, but you're also going to want to avoid moving during the day because that's the hottest part of the day in the, you know, at least in the summer and in a desert environment. So if you can build a shelter and just like kind of hang out during the day when it's shady, um, and then if you need to move around to look for water or try to get help, try to do that at night because it's going to be a lot cooler and you're not going to lose as much water. Right. Basically, just think like a kid if you need to build a shelter. You remember back to the days of building forts and just piling up sticks and, you know, get creative with it. Enjoy it. Keep a positive mental attitude <laughs> about the shelter you're building to save your life. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, and I'll, I'll give a, just a practical example, too. You know, my favorite is the lean-to. So you find yeah. a, a tree that's down that's already kind of bent down, and then you just pile a bunch of sticks on it and then fill that in with leaves and you got a shelter and it takes 30 minutes or so to set it up. Boom. Okay. Next up we have fire. So why is fire important? So yeah, I mean, it's super important to boy scouts because all boy scouts are pyromaniacs. Uh, fact. Yes. So, but fire actually, it ties into pretty much everything on this list except first aid. But I guess if you're, if you really know what you're doing, you could cauterize a wound maybe with a fire. So, so maybe it does tie into all of them, but I find this one funny too, or interesting because few of us, including myself, carry any kind of like fire starter with us in our packs. You know, you could throw a lighter or some matches or even just like a flint and steel in your pack. Doesn't take up any room, doesn't weigh anything, but uh, it could be super important. And again, it's, it's, if you're in a survival situation, it's more important than your water or your food. So fire is good because it can help with your positive mental attitude. You know, I was half joking about Boy Scouts being pyromaniacs, but there is something about having a fire that makes you feel safe and uh, 
yeah, I mean, there's a reason why when we go camping, we can just like stare at the fire for hours at a time. <laughs> but, you know, it, it feels good at night because you feel safe, feel like it's, you know, keeping predators away and that, you know, you're progressing. And yeah, I think it's like an inner caveman thing, actually. But beyond just the positive mental attitude, there's also obviously warmth. So if you're getting in a cold environment, you're going to want to fire uh, because, again, hyperthermia can kill you much more quickly than uh, a lack of water or food. And then some of the other things we're going to talk about next on the list, but uh, fire helps with signaling. So it can help somebody find you if you're lost out in the woods. And then it can help with water purification. If you have a pot or something to boil water in, that's going to help you with your water need. And then also cooking, you know, if you're, if you're really out lost for weeks at a time and, you know, you start killing little rodents and whatever for food, you can use your fire to roast them up and make them taste good. So yeah, I'm going to put a lighter or something in my pack right now. Awesome. You mentioned signaling, which is the next item on our outline. So what, what, what does signaling entail? Who are we trying to get a hold of here? So again, I'll touch a little on prevention. You know, every time you go out for a ride, especially if it's a backcountry ride or a really long ride, we're going to be out for a while. It's really important to let someone know where you're going to be. Someone outside your group, obviously, so that if you don't come back in time, then that person knows that you're potentially lost or in trouble. So yeah, definitely know someone, let someone know where you're going, when you expect to be back. So signaling is really important if you're lost or you're incapacitated. Like you can't, you can't actually get out. You don't know which way to go to get out and you just really need someone to come and get you. So, uh, you could skip this step, you know, if it's just like, you know, you don't have time to get back to your car before dark or whatever and you're going to end up spending the night on the trail. Um, you, you can skip the signaling. You don't need anybody to come get you, but assuming you do need somebody to come get you, there are some things you can do to signal. So one of the first things to know is that three blasts of like a whistle or anything like yelling three times in a row or banging a stick three times in a row, that's the universal sign for distress. So do that, carry a whistle. You can even, I mean, I guess you could use smoke signals. I don't know if anybody knows what those are anymore, if they actually work, but, uh, but having a fire helps again, because at night, if there are crews out looking for you, you know, fire is easy to spot at night. And if it's a really smoky fire, it can be seen from the air during the day. And then you're also going to want to find a spot where like an open spot, if you're in the forest, an ideal spot to like hang out and hope somebody finds you would be near a clearing or a field. Um, because that's somewhere that like a helicopter could land in case you need someone to come rescue you. But it's also a good place. You could use sticks or rocks and spell out SOS, uh, which again is like a universal sign, at least here in the USA, uh, that you need help. And a field is also good. If you see aircraft going over, you can jump up and down and wave your arms and hopefully try to get their attention. Another thing to mention is that if you are truly lost, the best thing to do is to just stay put. Because if if you're lost, there's no sense in walking around and trying to find your way out because you don't know where you're going. And a lot of times you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to get more lost. You're going to get, you're going to get off the trail where 
somebody potentially knows that you went to. So probably increase your chance for injury. Yep, exactly. And I was guilty of doing this myself uh, when I had, uh, I guess it was a survival situation on a trail. And I thought, oh, I, I can just cut through here. I don't need to walk back on the trail. I'm going to like, you know, make a beeline for the direction I think I need to go. And I quickly realized that was a bad idea because, you know, I ended up just like going through ravines, like, you know, the terrain was really rough. And then also I realized if I like collapse here or something, like nobody's going to find me, you know, they're going to go up and down this trail and say, no, he's not here. Uh, but I'm like laying in a ditch, you know, a hundred yards off the trail. So yeah, stay put if you can talk about another time that I was lost. Uh, well, I was just going out for a day hike with Leah and our dog, um, along the Appalachian trail. And I had a map and a GPS and the map showed a trail that it wasn't really a shortcut. It kind of like made a loop with the Appalachian trail. And, um, this was just like a day hike. We were going to go back to the car and eat lunch. And so we started going down this trail and it just started getting like fainter and fainter and fainter until finally it was just gone. And, I'm a stubborn guy and I, I like adventure. So I was like, Oh, let's just keep going. Like I can see on the GPS we're, you know, close to the road here, but I mean, we probably weren't even a quarter of a mile from the road and it took us hours to like bushwhack through this. And the terrain was like super steep and rocky and, you know, there's trees down everywhere. And, you know, by the time you like go around a tree that's in your way, you realize you're heading the wrong direction and it is bad. So Definitely try to stay put if you can, especially if you're lost and wait for someone to come get you. Yeah, it's no fun being lost. What about if you have your phone with you? Is, is there any way you can uh, use your phone to help get you out of a jam? Obviously, you can't really rely on it, but phone is a good thing to have. If you don't have a signal or anything, obviously that doesn't really help you. And you're going to want to conserve the battery, though. Like, Don't keep checking it or anything like that. You know, if someone knows that you're lost, hopefully they can attempt to track your phone without you having to do anything. So head toward the last place you know that you might have cell service. But again, I would, I've learned my lesson anyway that, you know, stay where you know that you are or go back the way you came. But trying to, you know, walk somewhere to get a better cell signal. I once on a bike trip up to Wisconsin, I was having a hard time getting cell service at the place where we were staying. And, uh, one of the guys, one of the local guys was like, Oh, you just, just go down the road. You know, he kind of described like this one spot where like, maybe I would get some cell service. And I started driving. I had my phone in my hand and I'm looking at the phone, waiting for like the signal to come up. I drove for like an hour or something like way into the middle of nowhere. There were like no more lights, no more anything. And I was like, okay, like, that's not a good idea to just go out and look for <laughs> cell coverage. Like unless you know where it is. Yeah. Just put your phone down and concentrate on this checklist. Thankfully I've never been too lost on a trail either. I guess, I guess just should take away that I've been really lucky so far. I did, uh, started to get a little sketched out last summer. I was riding in West Virginia around snowshoe and if anyone has ever been there before you know how remote that area is and there's a variety of reasons for it one is they have i believe it's a radio telescope or something there and so they don't have cell towers anywhere around the region because it'll interfere with the work that they're doing 
So cell signal is extremely limited, even if you're on top of the mountains up there, it doesn't really make a difference because there's, there's no towers to see you. Uh, and I, I was riding in Slady Fork, which is the small town. I use that term very loosely, but it's a post office that's right next to Snowshoe. Some really good backcountry trails there, but they are very backcountry. I was riding out there by myself on a weekday, and the weather kind of turned, and it was much slower and rougher going than I had anticipated. And, you know, I, I told my girlfriend, I was like, hey, if you don't hear from me by 8 o'clock, start <laughs> to get worried. And it took me hours to ride this, like, 23-mile loop probably just because the trails were overgrown. The ground was really soft. It's really, like, kind of boggy and mossy in certain places. So that just saps all your speed and energy. And there were stinging nettles just whipping my arms and legs. So I was totally done. And, you know, it it definitely was one of those situations, like you said, where you kind of have to be rational because I was thinking, like, man, I need to get back. I need to get back to the hotel so I can call Susan and like let her know that I'm okay. But at the same time, I can't go too fast. I still have to ride within my limits, and I can't I can't go too hard because you know I'm I'm running out of water. I'm running out of food because no one's gonna find me. You know I'm riding in the back country in West Virginia on a Monday afternoon slash evening. So it might be Friday before somebody <laughs> else is riding out here. So yeah. Like like Jeff said, you gotta gotta make good decisions and uh, play it cool and don't rely on your phone. Yeah. Well, one thing I don't know if we're gonna mention it when we talk about prevention, but you know those spot satellite trackers can be really good because they have they got a button on there. You just press it if you're having trouble, and it sends your exact location to emergency responders, and you get a free ride out of the backcountry. Hopefully free. That's right. Yeah, I think there's a, there's like a subscription. They have to pay like a yearly service for that. But if you are going out in the back country regularly, it's obviously if you have to take it once in your life, it probably uh, more than makes up for the cost of it. And even if even if you can't, you know, if you're so injured that you can't even, you know, hit the button to let people know it's an emergency. Hopefully you've let someone know where you were going so they can monitor you on the spot website and they can see that your little tracker hasn't moved and hours and they they can uh, alert the proper authorities absolutely okay i don't know about you jeff but i'm getting thirsty because you know we built our shelter <laughs> we took care of our injuries uh we got this really sweet sos that we built in the middle of the field it's looking sharp as shit so what are we gonna drink yeah water is really important and it's one of those things you'll notice pretty quickly that you're getting thirsty because again you know, you can go, you can't go very long without water. Uh, definitely not as long as you can go without food. So one easy thing is to just carry some purification tablets in your pack, uh, water purification tablets. They're inexpensive, they're tiny, compact. So it's no big deal to throw that in your pack. That's right. Uh, there, there's any number of water purification methods out there. Greg recommends uh, Aquamira, which is like a two-step treatment. It's basically two little squeeze bottles, and you you know drop one in, and then from one bottle, and then a couple drops of the other bottle. Really small, basically like the size of a you know Visine or eye drop bottle, so easy to throw in a pack. There's iodine tablets, which are even smaller, but they do kind of leave a gross taste in the water. 
and I've been carrying, I probably mentioned this on a podcast before, I feel like, but I've been carrying a MSR, Mountain Safety Research uh, Trail Shot Filter. It's, I've been carrying it all this summer and it's been great. It's really allowed me to kind of take a mental load off because I don't have to worry about running out of water. And in the summer here in Georgia, it's hard. If you're going to try to do three, four, five, six plus hour ride here, it's almost impossible to carry all the water that you're going to need with you from the get-go. Um, and I mean, even if you could, like, why would you want to? It's going to weigh <laughs> so much. So having this small portable filter, the, the trail shot's about the size of your fist. It weighs five ounces. So there's really no reason not to bring it with you, especially here where uh, we have, where we're lucky to have plenty of access to, to water along the trail. So yeah, have you ever run out of water on the trail? Found yourself in that emergency situation? I have um, numerous times. Probably the worst time was riding the, the Pinhoti Trail in North Georgia. This was several years ago. So those that don't know, the Pinhoti Trail starts at the South Carolina and Georgia border, runs all the way through North Georgia from east to west, and then it actually continues on into Alabama. I think in all it's around... 350 miles and that's trail and road and double track but this particular section of it is the snake creek gap section it's in near dalton georgia which is kind of the extreme northwestern corner basically of the state anyways this this area you basically have to ride it as a point to point or an out and back and my my buddy austin and i decided to ride it and we were going to do this whole 34 mile section but we parked it one end of it, and then we rode our bikes on the pavement to the start of the trail, and then we we're going to ride the trail backwards. So it was a beautiful fall day. We started out, and you know, both of us are competitive, and uh, so we were probably egging each other on on the road a little bit and went needlessly fast on the road. And that was probably 15, 20 miles of pavement before we even got to the trail. And then once we hit the trail, we quickly realized that uh, it was going to be pretty tough going. All the leaves had come down and were entirely covering the trail. So you couldn't even see the trail. And for those that have ridden this trail, or who haven't, I guess, it's extremely rocky. And with the leaves covering the trail, you couldn't, couldn't see the rocks. So it basically made the climbs impossible because you couldn't see where you were going. So we're having to walk all these climbs which obviously adds a lot of time. And as far as keeping a positive mental attitude makes it really rough to do that when you're just getting demoralized by having to push your bike up the hill. So anyway, yeah, we probably stupidly decided to push on and uh, try to ride the trail all the way back. But both of us ran out of water. And by the end of it, it was just, it was a total shit show. Um, there were a couple gravel climbs on it with relatively mellow grades and I couldn't even ride up those. I was had a terrible headache. I was having to walk my bike up the hill and every hundred yards or so I'd think I could get on and try to ride again and I would and any kind of exertion would cause me to throw up. So oh, yeah. That's your worst fear, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. It's like I'm okay. Well like I, I'd hardly ever throw up, but it doesn't bother me as much uh, like when it's me. But uh, yeah, when when other people puke, it's, it's it's bad for me. Yeah. So anyway, we ended up finishing well after dark. Yeah, you know, we were we weren't dressed for it. The temperature, like this was 
like I said, this was fall, probably late fall since the leaves were down. Um, so we were getting cold, we were out of water. Um, Austin actually ended up riding a, a little bit ahead of me because he was just like, man, I got to get, he's like, I got to get back to the truck. I'm freezing. And uh, so, yeah, I just, I, I remember getting to his truck and basically collapsing. And then we found the nearest country store and bought some Cokes and snacks. And that really helped feel better. But yeah, that was, uh, you know, that definitely wasn't the last time I've run out of water, but that was probably the worst. How about you? Yeah, I, I won't go into it because I think I, I think we maybe did a whole episode on this. But uh, one time I was riding by myself in Arkansas and had a mechanical issue on the trail and then ran out of water. It was like 100 degrees and I ended up calling 911 from the trail and had to have someone come rescue me. So, yeah, I know a little bit about what not to do as well as what to do. But, yeah, it, you can get into obviously you can get into trouble really quickly if you run out of water. So yeah, again, like, like I mentioned earlier, you want to minimize your exertion during the hottest part of the days. If you're trying to survive in the back country. So try to do your work in the cool parts of the day and, and any traveling, if you're trying to, you know, get yourself out. Um, obviously all of us, I think know that if you're looking for water, you're going to want to head downhill, look for low spots, wherever you are for water. Sometimes there are ways you can collect condensation. So, a lot of the stuff that we have in our packs or, you know, even the clothes that we wear for mountain biking, they're these, you know, synthetic fabrics that do a good job of potentially collecting condensation. Uh, so that works even in the desert. You know, if you're patient enough, you can survive that way. And that's the way that people get water that are lost at sea because obviously they can't, there's water all around them, but they can't drink it. Um, so condensation can work out for you, can help you. And then also water can help you find your way out if you're lost. Again, I actually tried this and this is, I, it got me into trouble, right? At least started to try this because I'd always been taught that if you're lost, you can, you know, follow a waterway, whether it's just a little creek or a river or whatever. And eventually you're going to, you're going to run to a bridge or a town or something the farther you go downstream. So when I was in Arkansas and I was looking for a quick way out, you know, a way to get to a, a road where I could flag somebody down or whatever. So there was this stream right beside me and I, I went down into the ravine and started walking down the, the creek bed and I didn't get more than a hundred yards before I got to like this waterfall, like drop off thing that like <laughs> I couldn't get down and to get around it would mean like going back up the ravine and walking around on the top. And I was just like, this is dumb. Like this, this is not going to get me out as quickly as I thought, but it can work in certain situations. If it's like a nice, you know, placid river, then maybe it'll be a flat way to walk and, and it'll keep you cool. That was part of my thinking then too, because it was over a hundred degrees. And I thought, oh man, maybe if I just like wade through the stream, you know, at least it'll cool me down and maybe I can absorb some water through osmosis <laughs> i thought about drinking it too but it the at least the part i was at it looked kind of stagnant and gross i had a situation when i was in high school when i was riding with some friends and a friend of ours was he didn't really get lost he just like fell so far behind and we were dicks and like didn't wait for him and like we eventually had to go back and find him and turned out he had like his bike was broken he had no water and he was, he was really delirious. So we decided, 
you know, he kept saying like, I don't have any water. I don't have any water. And none of us did either because we're high schoolers and we weren't prepared at all. But he had his water bottles and there's like a little creek. And so I think it was my idea. I went and filled his bottle up with the creek water. And I told him because he wasn't moving. I mean, he could not walk on his own power. Uh, he was just delirious. Just like, I got to get out of here. I got no water. Like, and we were a couple miles from the car. So I, I filled up his bottle and I said, Hey man, no, no, you had water. You had some left. Like here, drink it <laughs> just to, again, cause the positive mental attitude, I want him to feel like he was, he was going to be okay. And, you know, I'm sure he'd taste good in his mouth to at least like, you know, not have a dry mouth. And so he drank it and he got back to the car and everything, but yeah, he had, had bad, bad diarrhea after that. <laughs> so uh, it's like a yeah, it's like a temporary. I still think it was probably the right call uh, because we knew that you know we were going to be back quickly. But if you if you're like not sure if you think you might be out for days, don't drink you know unfiltered water because uh, it can leave you more dehydrated. Because if you get diarrhea or anything like that, it can make it a lot a lot worse. I think one thing um, like you just mentioned with trying to follow the the creek or water or river or whatever downstream and you know talking about hiking with leah and getting lost it's just kind of important to stay on the trail i mean i think that's <laughs> that's a big takeaway here because there's a reason we build trails and there's a reason that trails are built the way that they are uh, they may seem circuitous in their uh direction but they they're, they're built that way for a reason because that's the typically the easiest way to navigate the terrain sometimes the direct way which you might think is the fastest is um it's a terrible idea yeah and a lot of trail systems especially ones that are you know well built and maintained you may have noticed there will be like markers with random numbers or letters on them and i've often wondered what those are and how they're used but you know typically they're used for rescue uh the if you are able to get in contact with someone you know on the phone or whatever because somebody's injured in your group or you make it back to your car and you try to go for help. If you know like a marker point, then that can help rescuers get to somebody. And a lot of those, they have like shortcuts. A lot of them will be, you know, where there's like a dirt road that intersects the trail or whatever. So pay attention to those signs if you see them uh, so you can get help. Yeah, that's a good point. I actually had a friend, um, I was not riding with her at the time, but she had a really bad crash at uh, Blankets Creek, which is one of the most popular trail systems in the U.S., frankly, but definitely in the metro area of Atlanta. Um, and she broke her pelvis, I believe, Whoa. ended up. Yeah, really bad. But, you know, they had to call. She had to be rescued from Blankets Creek, essentially, because, you know, she couldn't be carried out and she obviously could not walk out under her own power. So, even a ride on your local trail system can can turn into a survival situation. So, yeah, definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah. One more thing I'll mention about water before we move on is that uh, you you don't want to ration your water. A lot of people, you know, if you're in a situation and you think, shoot, I might be out here for days and all I've got is this one water bottle, you know, I'm just going to take a couple sips every few hours. Uh, that's not always the best call because they're allegedly have been situations where people were found dead because of dehydration and they still had water in their bottles. And again, you know, you don't always know exactly when you're 
at that point. So you might as well drink it. You know, if you're going to sweat it out, you're going to sweat it out. And there's not really a lot you can do to that, to avoid that. I think Greg was going to mention that you don't want to just drink all your water though, like right away either. You know, if you're, you know that you're well hydrated, you know, your urine is pretty clear. Um, you don't want to just, you know, drink your water because Jeff told you to on the podcast. Like, you know, you want, you want to make sure you're thirsty and that you need that water. But when you are thirsty, drink. And when the water's out, water's out. And hopefully you've figured out someplace to get water by that point. Yes. Okay. I don't know about you, but I'm getting hungry. <laughs> we, uh, we got all that we can drink. So food, that's, uh, that's the last thing on the list, right? Of the, on, on our outline here. Yeah, they say you can su- survive three weeks without food, uh, which is pretty impressive. I, I don't think it would be comfortable at all. I think it would be, it'd be excruciating, actually. But um, yeah, I can't even go a week without pizza. <laughs> right? Yeah, I got to have my three squares a day. But, but yeah, if you if you are out for days, you know, this isn't like first day. You know, oh shoot, I got to spend the night on the trail. I better find something to eat. Like you're going to be okay. You don't need to drink or eat anything. Uh, if it's just going to be a few days, but if you find yourself out in the middle of nowhere for days and you're starting to get hungry, it's time to think about what are you going to eat? So you definitely don't want to eat, you know, leaves or berries or nuts or anything like that, unless you know what it is you're eating and you know what you're doing. You know, obviously there can be plants and things that can make you really sick. So again, yeah, make sure you know what you're doing, you know, and, and if you, a lot of people are able, they also know how to trap and hunt and, you know, that's definitely possible too. You don't need a lot of special tools or equipment. Um, that's just knowledge. So you can arm yourself with that knowledge and find a forest full of food. If you know what you're doing. Sounds delicious. Have you, so a a lot of times we hear people talk about bonking on a ride and for people that don't know, bonking is basically where you I guess your blood sugar is really low because you haven't eaten enough and you just kind of hit a wall and you can't ride. You're, you're fatigued. Yeah. You know, your, your legs have no power. You have no energy. It's really a bad place to be. Um, so have you, have you ever bonked Jeff? Yeah, definitely. That's something that, I mean, I think it's pretty common for a lot of people on big rides or even not big rides. If you don't eat well ahead of time or during the ride and, one thing though to keep in mind is that while it might, if you ever have bonked, you know, it might feel like, like, I just can't go on anymore. You know, this is it. Like I'm out of food. Like I cannot move. That may be true, like in the short term, but you need to just rest and recover a little bit and then you can keep moving. So that's, that's not exactly what I'm talking about here. It's not like a survival situation if you bonk during a ride. Right, and you maybe, just need a Snickers. Maybe during a race, you know, maybe your race is completely over, but you're going to survive that. Bonking's not a big deal. What about you? Do you ever bonk on rides, and how bad does it get? It's gotten bad, for sure. Uh, I've bonked in just about every situation you can, and it's something I still do with probably a little too much regularity. I think part of the issue here is like in the summer, it's just so hot and you're just like, everything's wet. Like your gloves are soaking wet and your jersey's soaking wet and your shorts and your chamois are soaking wet and your socks and shoes are full of sweat and it's just gross. Like the last thing you want to do is try to chew something because it's just like, yeah, that's just, ugh. Uh, I'm just thinking about it. It's making me not hungry. 
but yeah, I've I've never been in a in a life threatening bonking situation either. But yeah, it happens. It happens on the trail. Happens on the road. And like you said, sometimes you just need you need to just take a little break and recollect yourself. Yeah, and I think it ties into the very first thing, the positive mental attitude. You know, when we're hungry, we make bad decisions, we get hangry. Yeah, so it's not a good place to be. So yeah, I mean, just make sure that that's not your problem, that you're just like, I'm a little bit hungry. Like, make sure that you are in a survival situation again. Um, and same with the heat. You know, I think that affects my mental attitude as well. You know, I've been so hot during a ride that I just think, I, I can't do this, I can't survive this, but calm yourself down, get to a place where you can be rational and, you know, take care of those like immediate needs and then, and then reassess. Let's say you are in a survival situation and you do have some food with you. Should you, should you ration your food that you brought with you? I know we talked about not rationing your water necessarily, but what about food? Uh, again, it's the same, same kind of theory. You know, the food is a certain amount of energy and you're going to burn that energy either way. So if you, you know, take it all in at once versus spreading it out, you know, you're still getting the same amount of energy. You're still expending the same amount of energy. That being said, food can really help you with your positive mental attitude. You know, it can, it can help you just feel better, even if you're just tasting food and it's not necessarily giving you nutrition. And it can help too, if you're with a group for everybody to kind of eat together and like, yeah, it can just have some positive benefits in that way. But in terms of like making the food last longer, helping you survive longer, I don't think it really helps that way. Let's say we've eaten all our cliff bars. We found that goo that lives at the bottom of everyone's uh, hydration pack. We've eaten that even though it was expired and super gross (laughs) and we still haven't gotten rescued. So we're getting desperate. And we're starting to look around at some of these leafy greens and berries hanging from the trees. What, uh, what, what advice do you have for people in that situation? Yeah. So I said earlier that you shouldn't eat stuff unless you know what you're eating. But to me, I, I'm not an expert on that at all. And it seems like that's a lot of knowledge, you know, to remember like what it, what does everything look like that's edible? You know, that's a big catalog of items to keep in your head. So one thing you can do is you can test whether something is poisonous or not yourself. And keep in mind, you're in this survival situation. You've got lots of time on your hands, probably. You know, you're sitting around, hopefully in the same spot so that someone can find you. You've got your shelter, and you're just hanging out, and you got all the time in the world to figure this out. So this is the general theory for figuring out if something is going to make you sick or worse if you're eating it out in the woods. So... First thing you're going to do, let's say it's a leaf that you're thinking about munching on, something that looks like some leafy salad. First, you're going to take that leaf and you're going to touch it to your skin. If you can break it up, you know, that's probably good too. you know, kind of rip it up and get some of the leaf juices on your skin. And you're going to wait a few hours to see if you get a rash or any kind of irritation on your skin. Um, a lot of the things I've heard is are tested on like a particularly sensitive part of your skin too. So not like your hands, which are going to be, you know, really rough, but like inside of your arm or somewhere where you got some soft skin, that's going to be real sensitive to that. And then, yeah, just wait and see. So if there's no problem, you're not itching or breaking out or anything because of it after a few hours, then you're going to move on to the next test. 
So next you're going to do the same thing, kind of mash up the leaf or whatever and touch it to your lips for three minutes. And again, you're going to wait and see if there's any burning or tingling or anything like that on your lips. Again, this is the outside of your lips, not like inside your, it's not like chewing tobacco or, (laughs) or dip or anything like that. You want to, you want to just, just on the outside of your lips and again, see if there's any irritation. If not, then you're going to move on and then you're going to take the item and place it on your tongue for 15 minutes. So, um, and just a caveat, I've never done this. I'm also not endorsing this. I'm not telling you you're, you're nothing bad's going to happen to you if you do any of this stuff, but this is just, just the theory that's a lot of people agree with. So basically, yeah, you're going to put that item on your tongue for 15 minutes. You're not going to swallow it. You're not going to chew it up or anything like that. You're just going to, just going to sit there with it on your tongue for 15 minutes and again, check and see if there's a reaction. So, okay, we've done that. Now we're actually going to chew the item. So again, you chew it again for 15 minutes and again, you're not going to swallow it. So you're making sure that all the juices are getting inside your mouth and you're seeing if, if there's any problem there. So assuming that all of that has gone okay, you're going to eat a small amount of the plant. So I don't know what that means. I don't know what a small amount is. I would do like half a leaf or something if it was me. But maybe not. Maybe you're really hungry and you just like chow down a bunch. But try to restrain yourself to like one or two leaves. And you're going to chew it up, swallow it, and wait for eight hours to make sure uh, that you don't have a bad reaction to it. And then if that goes okay, then you need a little bit more, wait eight hours, eat a little bit more, wait eight hours, and kind of go from there. I think with anything... You know, even if it's berries, you find some like wild blackberries or something and, you know, there's just like bushes full of them. Don't gorge yourself on that because you can, you can get sick from that. It, it, there might be just too much, you know, citric acid in it or whatever that upsets your stomach. So definitely go in moderation. Even if you know it's something that's safe, you don't want to like fill your belly with it because, you know, eating too much of anything is going to, it's going to hurt your, hurt your stomach. Even Doritos. True story. I think we've covered everything on the Boy Scouts checklist here, but but what's what's some good general advice in just in the first place before you even head out into the woods? Yeah, I think I think Greg was going to share this with us, but you know, basically you want to avoid getting into a backcountry survival situation uh, just because you know what to do doesn't mean that you know you don't need to prepare and try to avoid it because it's not. It's not a game, you know, it's not something to mess around with, despite what you might see Bear Grylls do on TV. I don't, is Bear, Bear still on TV? I don't know. I'm I'm not sure either. Yeah. But yeah, you don't want to just, just put yourself in that situation if you can avoid it. So. Yeah. You don't want to be biting the heads off bats and, you know. That's just not necessary. Choking out snakes. Right. So yeah, I think we've covered these tips on previous episodes and in a lot of the articles that we've written, but some basic stuff. You want to watch the weather really carefully. You don't want to head out if there's a storm coming or there's a change of weather. You know, it might be 75 degrees, but if you check the forecast, you'd see there's a cold front coming in and, you know, it's going to snow the next day. So yeah, that's good to be aware of. You also want to, you know, be rational about what you're able to do. You know, if you're on an out and back ride and it's, it's not looking good, like it's taking you longer than you thought, you know, turn around, like don't try to 
don't try to push yourself too hard if if it looks like you might end up in a survival situation. I mentioned it before, but always have a good plan and let somebody know what your plan is. In the past, I've been really bad about that, but now I'm I'm really serious about it. You know, if, if I'm going to go anywhere, somebody's going to know where I am and when I'm going to be back so that uh, they can come looking for me if I don't come back. And then also, you know, we mentioned some items you can bring in your pack, like a lighter and water purification tablets uh, or drops, whatever you prefer. But yeah, make sure you have the right stuff in your pack. I think another good thing that we didn't mention is like a space blanket. You know, those don't take up any space, no pun intended. And they also, you know, they can help you with your shelter. You can use it to condense water on. So yeah, that's another good one. I think using for signaling. Yes, yeah, signaling. That's true. Yeah, yep. they have all kinds of uses, and they're they're about the size of a an energy bar, and they weigh about the same. So just throw one in your pack and never take it out. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, be prepared. Have some extra layers that could be really helpful if if you end up in a survival situation. Uh, but don't overdo it. You know, this isn't none of this is to like put fear in people and to say like. Every time you go out, you got to prepare for spending the night out, you know, that, that doesn't happen very often at all, hopefully. So (laughs) if it happens a lot, people are probably going to stop riding with you. (laughs) Although I think there's, there's always that guy or, or, or probably girl in every riding group that carries way too much. Right. Just in case. I mean, if you think about, if you sit down and you're like, okay, what might happen on this ride? Like you can talk yourself into bringing just dumb stuff yeah spare derailers and yeah which i did i did that on a bike packing trip because yeah i just started going on the list like oh wait what if my derailleur breaks oh wait what if, what if my handlebar gets cracked like <laughs> and you end up just bringing way too much so awesome you got anything else jeff that's all just be safe be safe out there guys and gals that are out there riding the trails we don't want you to have to use these tips but Hopefully, if you do find yourself in a situation, you'll remember some of them. That is all we have for this episode of the Single Tracks Podcast. We hope you're enjoying these weekly episodes as much as we enjoy putting them together for you. We're continuing to see our audience grow, which is awesome. And uh, we appreciate you guys that listen in every week. And tell your friends, tell your mom, tell your dad, tell your grandma and your cousin. Get them listening. Go on iTunes rate us on there it'll help other mountain bikers find our podcast and listen to it too so again that's it we'll talk to you next week on the single tracks podcast later